welcome to the Bent Bibliose podcast, where we chat with authors, book lovers, and each other about books, trends, writing, and so much more. I'm Tegan. And I'm Ashley. We are so excited to spend this time with you and to be a part of such an inclusive and incredible community. We are here today with thriller writer RJ Jacobs. RJ has written And Then You Are Gone, Somewhere in the Dark, and Always the First to Die. He is also a practicing psychologist. RJ, welcome. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Hey, good morning, guys. Good to see you. Before we begin chatting about your novel, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. So um, I, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I've lived here for about 19 years. And I grew up in Southwest Florida. And originally when I moved up here, it was just for a one-year gig. I had a one-year postdoc at Vanderbilt and didn't expect to stay that long. But uh, time kind of went by and it turns out that I've been here for a good bit. Um, So I've got a a clinical practice as a psychologist uh, and I live with my family uh, out here in West Nashville. That seems to be a theme in my life too, where I'm like, I never saw myself where I am, but here I am and you just kind of go with the flow. Yeah, it's, you know, time kind of goes by. And then when you start to think about moving, you kind of compare where you would be moving to to where you already are. And sometimes it, it stacks up better than you expect. Yeah. I have a lot of family where I am, so I don't see myself moving anywhere. Unless someone was like, here's a million dollars. And I'm like, <laughs> sorry, guys, <laughs> I can afford to meet you somewhere. So when did your love of reading begin and what books have had the biggest impact on you throughout your life? Gosh, you know, I, I think that for a lot of people, I'm, I'm like a lot of people who like reading. I, I think I've just kind of always enjoyed it. And I was thinking about Uh, books that I read when I was a kid. Um, You know, I was partial to the, I'm going to date myself here, but I was partial to the Choose Your Own Adventure series. And then there was a YA version after that called Time Machine that almost no one remembers but me. But it was essentially like Choose Your Own Adventure and you would kind of bounce back and forth in time. And the themes were, it was essentially historical fiction for YA. The themes were like World War II, and, um, you know, exploration out West. And it was pretty cool. You'd learn a little bit about history as you did it. You know, I, I think I kind of got into that when I was a kid. I remember those choose your own adventure books. I love them. I don't remember the YA version, but actually they have board games now, like adult board games that are the choose your own adventure Ooh. brand. So I've kind of been able to dip a little bit back into, into that. And actually I was at the bookstore yesterday and I've seen they're bringing a couple of them back. Not that like actual was it a brand, I guess? Yeah, but they're it, was bringing so, the- uh, it was so engaging and, yeah. you know, uh, such a neat idea. Um, it was kind of the original interactive media. Uh, yeah. But then, you know, I was on a panel last weekend. I was at a mystery writers conference. And, you know, the question was kind of going, going back to figuring out what were some of the original mysteries that you liked. And the one guy said, I got to say Hardy Boys. And I remembered, I'd forgotten how many of those that I had read when I was young, but that was, that was also a thing. And I uh, also was into Nancy Drew for a minute. You're bringing me back now. Yet yeah, Bobsy Twins was another one that was around Probably, that time. Yeah. We're all dating ourselves now. So <laughs> in that vein, when did you know that you wanted to become an author? Was it when you were younger or did it kind of develop as you grew up? <laughs> yeah, I think that I started really writing mostly when I was in college. and. You know, I think like a lot of people who, who kind of start out writing, you really just don't know what you're doing. And I had an English teacher at one point who kind of encouraged me to keep the pencil moving. Those were her words. And I think for a lot of writers, you, it's really like a skill. 
that it gets better the more that you do it. And you have to see it as really a nonlinear process. Some of those early drafts, some of those early stories, they're just not terribly compelling to anybody, but you, but you almost kind of have to write them, I think. So when I look back on some of the first things that I wrote, you know, probably <laughs> just not meaningful to anybody, but me, but um, you know, you, you get better and better as, as you go. And uh, hopefully like along the way, you start to get some feedback, you kind of drop the ego and get a little bit of feedback from other writers and maybe an editor, uh, other people that you, who are not your friends or family, who, you know, usually your friends and family just say, Hey, this is great, but it has to be people who you don't know, who, you know, aren't looking out for you. Uh, if you can kind of hear a little bit about what they're saying, it ends up that, you know, you get better as you go. I think it's sometimes easy to forget to the finished product that we all have in our hands is not at all where things start. There are so many drafts and so many steps to get from idea to finished product. For sure. And I think that there's a lot of like false starts that you have to kind of go through as you're working through an idea that sometimes those end up kind of coming back around and it just really wasn't ready to be developed at that point. Um, but sometimes it's the seed of something. You don't quite have the arc of it yet. Um, I, I try to, I store all those things. I have a file for some of those. Uh, and every once in a while I go back and it's funny how creativity works. You look back and think, oh yeah, that's right. I, I forgot that I even had that idea. It'll, it'll be a year or two years prior and it'll still be kind of sitting there. Sometimes, you know, you're ready to think about it and other times you're not. I love that. So moving on now to your new novel, Always the First to Die. For our listeners who may not have read it yet, can you tell us what it is about? Sure. So the sort of the basic plot is that there's a former horror movie actress who has to go into the evacuated Florida Keys to find her daughter after a hurricane. And the circumstances start to resemble the plot of the film she started. While I was reading it, I was wondering what your initial inspiration for the novel was. Um, you know, so it, as I, I was kind of getting going, writing the story, um, it, it, some people, some writers just have like very quick, they have a whole plot in their mind. And, um, if you've ever seen the movie Knives Out, there's a, there's an author in that story. And he sort of describes that where it's like, they kind of walk through, there's like sort of a flash and you can kind of see how he has this entire narrative in his mind. And for me, it usually starts, it's not quite that way. It starts really with like one idea. There's one vignette or one scene. And in this case, it was something caught on a security camera that could not possibly be explained. And from there, I kind of started to weave some elements into it and figure out how I could write a story that would explain something that was kind of impossible. So, uh, you know, you try sort of various elements. Um, in the sort of mystery thriller genre, uh, readers are looking for something that is kind of familiar enough that their expectations are going to get met, but isn't so overly familiar that it feels like they're reading the same thing again. So I wanted to work in a story about Florida. Uh, I wanted to see if I could make it work there. Um, I, I like the, you know, the notion of like horror movies being, um, something that people really are interested in, uh, mm -hmm. I thought was kind of cool. And, you know, as I was researching the book, there's some real horror fans out there. Uh, and I, I was kind of inspired by their passion for that genre. So 
I wanted to weave a couple of elements together and see if I could make it work. Yeah, there's definitely some horror fans out there. I don't watch a lot of horror films personally. Um, I think I put it down to my experience in grade school. I had a couple that kind of put me off horror movies where I would go over this Sorry, Ashley. Her name was also Ashley. I would go over to Ashley's house and she put Pet Cemetery on and then she would fall asleep. And then we were in her creepy basement and I'm by myself <laughs> as she's snoring. And it's just kind of set the tone for me. You know, <laughs> a lot of horror novels. It was scary. I wake uh, sitting there while she was getting a good night's sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be having nightmares. I was, uh, I'd go up to her mom who had insomnia and just hang out with her on the couch <laughs> upstairs. It was great. <laughs> you know, I think that um, there are subgenres even within horror movies and some are just way more fun to watch than others. Uh, some of them are really pretty uncomfortable to watch and some really kind of balance out comedic elements and comic relief. Um, and really, you know, there's some movies that people think of as being horror movies that are just not even particularly scary. It's just it's it's exciting or there's there's campy elements to it. But, you know, I guarantee if you watched um, like the original Friday the 13th or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, that, those those are not movies that you have to watch with the lights on, um, yeah. even though I think they're categorized as horror yeah, I really don't mind like Silence of the Lambs, um, which some people find like really disturbing, but that one didn't bug me. I enjoyed that one. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so your novel begins, and I quote, the air buzzes with silence while I listen at your door. Soon faint sounds emerge within the silence. The groan of truck tires on US-1, a woman laughing hysterically in the distance, the hush of waves rolling onto the beach, but nothing from inside your room. The opening is so atmospheric and it really sets the tone for the novel. I'm currently doing a reading experiment of sorts um, for a blog where I picked my TBR for the month based on the beginnings of novels, like whether I was like, ooh, that sounds amazing, or if I was kind of like, ooh, it's, you know, not really getting much from it. And I, I just kind of want to see if at the end there's a correlation between the beginning and my overall enjoyment of the book. So in your opinion, how important are the first opening lines of a novel and what is more difficult for you, the start or finish of a book? That's a great question. Well, I, before I answer it, I should ask how the experiments go. So far, I'm really enjoying all the books that I picked, but I I'm started off with the ones that I really love the opening. So I, I'll have to let you know later because I haven't um, picked up the ones where the opening didn't really grab me. Um, so one was Ivory, which sci-fi, which I normally don't read at all, but it was really good. And then I'm reading Never Night uh, by Jay Kristoff right now. And it's really, really good. Nice. Um, I feel like when it comes to an opening, um, the, the pace is sort of hard to get sometimes. And, you know, usually it's not quite until you hear back from your editor some feedback about what to expand and what to make a little bit smaller and more concise. Um, I know some writers who will start on page one and write to page 320, and that's the way that they work. And then there's other writers like me who just sort of bounce around, and maybe the opening isn't even the first thing they got written. 
maybe it was almost one of the last things. Um, I don't remember where in the sequence um, I wrote this opening in, in terms of creating this story, but I do remember feeling like I wanted the story to open up with something kind of mysterious. I, I like mystery stories with just a little bit of what the hell is going on. And because I, I think that that adds to the intrigue and I really want to, I would, my, my goal is to write a story that I would want to pick up and read. And I don't want it to be so confusing that the reader would, you know, has to constantly ask themselves, what are they reading or trying to keep the, everything straight. Um, but I like it to be just a little bit, I trust the reader a little bit to sort of stick with it and um, trust that I'm going to weave the elements together later. I love that. I'm not the type of person who reads to try to figure it out. I kind of, like you said, like just to go along for the ride, but um, openings, I'm not too overly concerned about the openings. I know some people are, but uh, it worked. Your story, I did not see the ending. I'm not going to give anything away, but I did not see it coming. The twists and turns were excellently placed throughout the novel. I loved it. So Thank it you worked. For that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, the, when it comes to pacing, you know, uh, author, what, what you hear a lot is that you have to really balance character development and trying to figure out how to create characters that people care enough about with pacing. So, you know, if it's too much character development, people get kind of lost in that and they think, wait, where's the story? Um, and if it's just a big action sequence from page one to page 320, people are like, you know, what was that? I, I don't think I kind of dialed in enough to that. Um, so it's, I think you really have to kind of thread that needle when you're, when you're, especially in the, you know, you're this, this question's about openings. And I think in the beginning, you have to be really <laughs> pretty good size. Absolutely. So there's a quote at the beginning of the novel that says the fundamental truth of existence is fear. Unfortunately, that is true. Everyone is afraid of something. Some like me, a lot more than others. Why do you think fear is so hard to overcome? I think it's hard to overcome because a lot of those fears are legitimate, you know? And so I'm a, my day job is that I'm a psychologist and, you know, I work with people about beating fears all the time. And some feel like they're irrational, um, but others feel like they're, they're very poignant. And I was thinking about that as I was kind of getting ready here, because, you know, I have, fears like everybody else I was afraid I was going to screw up the podcast or say the wrong thing or, you know, show up at the wrong time, you know? And I think that those fears are usually like, they're, they're kind of trying to help you out. So usually it's a, it's a helpful voice. Um, fear's not usually a great source of accurate information. You know, it kind of tends to distort things. And, you know, my sense about not to, not to get too far in the weeds here, but my sense is that usually, um, people are afraid of things proportionate to how vividly they can imagine them, not really how accurately they seem like they're gonna be in like a probabilistic sense. So people are very afraid of uh, plane crashes, but it's very, very unlikely that that's ever gonna happen. Much more likely you get in trouble driving from here to the mall. But, you know, it's, it's very easy to imagine just how horrible it would be if something went wrong there. And so it's sometimes, kind of the vividness of it distorts the your sense of how accurate it is. Like, I like how you just said that it's how vivid you can imagine it. So I have generalized anxiety disorder. I'm afraid of pretty much everything. And I love my imagination sometimes, but sometimes, yes, it is not my friend. I can imagine 73 ways that something will go wrong in like five seconds. <laughs> yeah. 
And I think that, uh, you know, I, I just said I didn't want to get like too far into the weeds here for myself, but there's a, an evolutionary biology component to that. It, um, are you familiar with the notion of sticks and berries? No. So there's this notion that if we were going to go back to the time when we were just primitive people, that if we were foraging uh, and we were collecting berries for a meal, that it would actually be okay if we missed a berry that down the path a little bit further, we'd find more berries or we'd find something else to eat. Um, but if there was a sharp stick that was sticking out along the path, we couldn't miss that because the consequences for missing that would be really bad. Actually, it could puncture the skin, break a bone. Uh, you could get an infection that would be game over. So the evolutionary biology is that you, you can't miss a stick, but you can miss a berry. And the idea is, is that that generalizes now in like modern time to paying attention much more to the liabilities of things and missing uh, the, the good things or the things that you want to be grateful for. And it's, I think it's an interesting way of thinking about it because the question always comes up, like why is the mind so naturally predisposed to worrying? But it's an explanation. There's a book, um, it's a little off track. Uh, there's a book called The Gift of Fear that I recommend oh, yeah. uh -huh. to a lot of people, um, particularly women, because um, we are socialized to be super polite. And um, it's the idea that fear is a tool um, and to listen to our gut in certain scenarios and things like that. Have you read it? I haven't. I'm familiar with it, but I haven't actually yeah. And um, I was really influenced by it. And, um, and that's, I know the, where I work, we do sell it for a course as well. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to people, I'm like, just because it's a course material, like you should read it. Like, it's actually really good, especially if you like true crime, because um, it's linked to actual uh, cases and such with like stalkers and different scenarios. But um, I think if we view it as a tool sometimes, um, I, I guess it just depends on if it's debilitating, like if your fear is debilitating your uh, or uh, impacting your quality of life. Um, otherwise, it can be a tool. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Does it does it interfere with your life? Mm -hmm. um, or are there things that you feel like you're afraid of that you should be afraid of? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Ooh. Yeah. Well, this is actually really great that we were discussing this because it leads into my next question. After Lexi is startled by the appearance of the estate after the hurricane, she asks herself, what's the psychological term for numbness from anxiety? The one my grief counselor taught me, derealization. When things are too much at once, you float above. As you were developing your character's motivations and actions in the book, how much did your knowledge as a psychologist influence your authorial choices? It's, you know, I, sometimes I, um, people ask me what kind of books that I write and without even answering, they'll say like, this must be a psychological thriller. And I don't think about it too much, but it feels almost like this language that I speak that it's hard to turn off. Sometimes I feel like one of the pieces of feedback that I've gotten from editors at times is that I need to use a little less jargon and I kind of forget even that I'm using it because sometimes I'm just writing a report and I forget sometimes like you know, people won't know what this is or why I'm using that. In, in the book that I'm writing right now, um, it's set in a psychology department and there are all these technical terms about the experiment that these grad students are running. 
and uh, you, <laughs> I have to remember that these are, and some of them are are probably outdated because I was in grad school 20 years ago. So I have to kind of watch it a little bit, but I suppose if, you know, if you just like to write, um, that stuff just comes out. Probably if I was a lawyer, I would write what people think of as legal thrillers, or if I was a physician, I'd, I'd probably write medical thrillers. And they, those kinds of professionals probably have to ask themselves the same kinds of questions. In some ways it's cool because it, it gives you kind of a, a unique window into that occupation, but the, the other part of it is that you have to be careful that it's it's translatable to somebody who doesn't know the ins and outs of it. That's so interesting. And we were actually just talking to uh, Kelly Armstrong. She is a fellow Canadian. And she was saying how certain things like our electricity here, we call it hydro. Like that's just mm, yeah. what we call it. But she's like, people read it. They're like, what is that? Or, you know, different words that we have don't translate outside of Canada. So it's kind of interesting. And she said it's can be difficult sometimes to you, you want to stay true to what you're writing but you also want to have it readable for a wide range of people everywhere so she said it's a very particular balance to keep the flavor but still be understandable to everyone yeah i think that's right i think the other variable there is just in terms of time and how timeless versus timely you want your book to be so my first book, I had a character, I'm just remembering this now, I had a character that I described as having Bernie Sanders hair. And the person who was editing it said, you might want to change this to Albert Einstein hair, because that is, that's somebody that everybody almost cross-culturally can picture. And that's somebody that is going to keep cropping up or their image is so, so, you know, widely known that there's no way people won't know what that is. But in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, people may not remember what that is. That's true. So the novel is told mainly from the point of view of our main protagonist, Lexi. It is also told through dual timelines, one in the past when Lexi is on the set of the horror film Breathless and one taking place in the current day. What do you think this added to the story? And what were some of the challenges of weaving those two storylines together in such a seamless way? Yeah, so I think one of the advantages of a dual timeline is that you get a deeper sense of the significance of the events in the present part that it kind of adds to the meaning of it, that you know that this story really started years before and that when the events are unfolding, that the roots of that story are, are, are anchored in the past. I think that's a pretty cool idea. And I think it also just as in terms of telling the story, it gives you some moments at the ends of chapters to have real cliffhangers because you can say, you know, something that is, you know, kind of ends with the dot, 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 and then jump back 25 years. And really what you hope is that the reader is going to say, oh my gosh, I have to keep reading. You know, I, I can't not figure out what happened here. I think one of the challenges is that it's going to be confusing. Um, and that people will say, what year is this? Or who are these people again? And you have to really work to make that information relevant so that it's not just like an info dump about, you know, what was going on 25 years. It can't be two different stories. It has to be almost like the highlight reel of that time from before that, you know, it relates directly to the present. So. And both timelines take place on the Pinecrest Estate. So I want to talk about the Pinecrest Estate for a minute. It sounds amazing. It overlooks the gulf, has huge windows, a large ornate staircase. I would love to stay there, albeit without all the creepy goings on. Sure. Is it inspired by a real place or destination? So the estate, the creepy haunted house estate itself, I totally made up. 
there's nothing there's to my knowledge there's nothing like that in the keys um i have been to the keys a number of times and this place that is called isla Marat, it's actually a, a series of little islands that is um all known as that collectively um it's it's better than a postcard I mean, it's for people who like that sort of uh, kind of natural environment. It's it's just the most beautiful place I think I've probably ever been. There's hardly any nightlife, but that's not really the point. You know, most people go down there to relax or to fish, and that happens early in the day. Um, and so some of those views are pretty amazing. When I was researching the, the book, I talked to a lot of people who run uh, those inns and marinas that live around there. And specifically, I talked to them about what the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew was, because there was a period of time after after that where the circumstances are pretty close to the plot of the story. Um, and what they said again and again was, it was just extremely dark at night, that they were doing a lot of things by candlelight, including cooking. And I, I think probably that started to jog my imagination about like how how cool or much like a horror movie set that would really be. And that like they would go into the grocery store uh, during the day because that was the only place that had air conditioning. And it was really wild. They said it, it took uh, weeks for things to really get back to normal. But, you know, for the keys down there, there's only really one road in and one road out. So, you know, if something cut that off, it would be pretty primitive pretty fast. The one road in, one road out, that disturbs me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like no, mm -mm, no, I don't like uh, the claustrophobia. Is uh, uh, but it's I would also love kind of the, it's also kind of the beauty of it, you know, yeah. because um, if you're looking for some place that modern life is not just constantly mm -hmm. pressing down, you know, you 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 put yourself out there. It's great. Yeah, the idea of disconnecting though that appeals to me, like going somewhere and just relaxing. Absolutely, sure. yeah. yeah. I've maybe a kid-free vacation <laughs> that would be good there's a, an author that i know i met last weekend and his new thriller is called device free weekend device free so what is that about you know these people decide they're going to leave their phone somewhere else and they go out on an island yeah what kind of world that we live in that that is like a horror thing and i've watched so many documentaries of how bad these things are for you i i, I can't put it down <laughs> I think people have like a love-hate relationship with it. And, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where a lot of times people will say, um, oh, I lost my phone or I dropped it in the water. So I didn't have it for a day. And it was just the greatest day ever. People say stuff like that all the time. But in in terms of writing a mystery, it really makes things pretty complicated because you know, what ends up happening is you have to figure out solutions to things that would just very easily be solved by modern technology. You know, the police could look up based on your location where you were at a specific time or you could call for help pretty easily. So there's a lot of um, it's almost kind of a trope, you know, at this point, like the power has to be out or a lot of mm -hmm. signals have to drop or something like that. And so it's it's a little bit of a challenge to not be completely corny about it all. Um, but it, yeah, I, people, you know, I, I think they're fascinated by you know, what it would be like to be in the past. And I think for this reason, um, historical fiction is more popular now because I think a lot of writers just don't want to solve that problem too much. They, mm -hmm. they think if this was set in the seventies, you know, there would be no, you know, no cell phone, no Apple phone. 
yeah that's that is true like and that reminds me of like horror films where you're like she would have known he was in the corner she just turned the light on like people are yelling at like on those old like slasher ones you're like why would you go in the house no one would go in the house you would stand outside and call the police like i don't understand what's happening um and uh speaking of horror films uh throughout the novel rick's directorial methods to get the most out of his the actors on the set of breathless are questionable however as one character reflects breathless's success as a horror film would not have been possible without the terror he stoked in his actors for me it really brought to mind other great films like the shining where kubrick pushed shelly duvall to the limit or where tippy hedron literally had live birds attached to her with an elastic during different parts of filming at the direction of Hitchcock, which is just terrifying. And so it made me think, do the ends justify the means here? So in your opinion, how much should we separate art from the artist as we decide what to enjoy or support as consumers? I think that's that's a great question that I, I feel like, I, you know, I think it's so personal, actually, and I respect the way that anybody feels about it. I personally have a very easy time doing it and probably because I don't think about it very much. If I did think about every artist's personal life or, you know, what they did throughout the course of their life, it probably would trouble me. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, I try not to, I will say that um, it, it probably overlaps a little bit with my professional life and that I just have a very easy time not judging. And when somebody comes into my office, it's, it's already, they don't need to lecture, you know, they're already there because they want to do something different. So I feel like I, I pretty naturally take that position, but uh, what, what do you guys think? I personally um, think that like you, it's up to the, the person and what is really, um, if it's going to hurt, feel like painful to them to read it once they know the background of someone, then that's their choice. Um, but I think back on how much joy books like um, The Famous Five by Inid Blyton. And then um, apparently she wasn't the greatest mother and she was beloved by children and readers and including myself. And then Dickens, apparently he did some questionable things. There's a lot of <laughs> um, people that we uh, really, really enjoy. So I think if you enjoy it um, and like yourself, I don't think too much about it if I like the movie or I like the book um I guess it's just are is it are they hurting someone that would be if it's current but a lot of times it's stuff we find out afterwards I find afterwards that you could have never known and you know yeah I find it pretty easy to do um but I I certainly respect how people feel like they kind of can't separate it I'm similar to you in that I don't think about it too much. And one thing that I will, I, I hate Twitter. I won't go on Twitter and I find like so much of the, like you said, personal lives and things are on Twitter. So I just stay away from it. I kind of stay in my lane and enjoy what I enjoy and everyone else. I think, yeah, the same, like you guys said, can do the same. I find Twitter so dark. I don't know why, you know, I tried to get on it for a minute when I was starting out, I got on a couple of different social media platforms. And Twitter just bummed me out every time. And, you know, you kind of have to pay attention to your own, you know, emotional response to something. And after I looked at it for a while, I would just be kind of crabby or just 
you know, feeling discouraged about the world. I don't want to feel like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not saying that people should not know what's going on in the world, but I don't like the news. Typically I'm like, it's, you know, it's an, it's a new age where we have to really, you know, be our own um, disciplinarian about how much of that we're taking in. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's not something where we're all just going to watch the six o'clock news and have like a, a very finite amount of that, you know, it updates every few minutes. So yeah. you can consume as much as you like or as little as you like, but it's up to us now. Yeah. Otherwise it's like information overload and oh. like a lot of, I don't know, but like propaganda. You're just hearing one side of the story versus like really getting the truth necessarily. Um, uh, totally. And I've also found myself caught up in something where I felt just furious about some bit of news and then within 24 hours, a different side of the story comes out. And I think, oh, I, I kind of wish I had known that in the beginning. And then 24 hours later, a different side comes out. It, it all reverses course again. It's like this constant drama that's unfolding. And you really have to ask yourself how much of that you want to be involved in. Yeah. Or, or if you're just trying to get other stuff done. You know, it's, yeah. it, it does chew up bandwidth to just kind of stay in that zone. Yeah. I guess I'm on the train of, I don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that <laughs> so your novel literally references well-known horror movies and other cursed films throughout, such as The Exorcist, where seven people associated with that film died. The history of the film becomes almost as legendary and disturbing as the movie itself. What fascinates you most about the tragic coincidences these sets experienced? And what did your research process look like for the novel and some maybe some interesting bits that didn't make it into the book? Oh, good question. Um, the research of this, you know, so I, like I said, I talked to um, hotel owners and, and managers who lived down in the Keys after Matthew. Uh, that was really helpful. I watched a ton of horror movies um, and I read a couple of horror movie survival guides. Uh, that, you know, sort of lay out the tropes and the strategies for how you would go about kind of making it out of one. Um, a lot of that is pretty tongue in cheek, but, um, you know, I, I made, my son's a big movie buff. And so uh, he, I think had a pretty good time watching some of the old classics. With me. I do not love horror movies. We'll get into it in a little bit, but I, I'm a wimp. I can read horror all day long watching them. I'm not so good at <laughs> It's, you know, when um, when people watch them, a lot of times they'll watch kind of with their hand covering their their face. And I get that, especially I think I, I, I'm easy. It's easier for me to watch it at home uh, because I feel like I there are other factors that are, are I'm familiar with. But in the theater, it, it's tougher to just get up and walk out. You can't push pause. Exactly. That's true. That's true. Or you can't watch it on mute. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The sound is such a huge part of it, right? Yes. So at one point in the story, Lexi reflects that disgusted, I kept my distance from Rick going forward, knowing what lengths he would go to for fame. The subject is, of fame is one that fascinates me because honestly, it is the last thing that I would ever want. And Lexi has no use for how far Rick will go in the pursuit of that fame. Why do you think so many people are enamored with fame and that some will sometimes go to extreme lengths to achieve it? Yeah, I'm with you. It's it seems like a strange thing to want. Um, and I was thinking about this. Um, I was at. Are you guys familiar with the music festival Bonnaroo? You know what that is? So it's a it's a big concert festival 
And it's about an hour and a half south of here on a farm. And multiple days, tens of thousands of people, uh, huge concerts. And uh, my son and I went and we camped out and we were watching the shows. And I realized that during these concerts, that when I was watching the show, the performer, the people in front of me a lot of times had their phones up and they weren't recording the show. They were recording themselves with the show in the background. And it occurred to me that they're basically like making a little TV show where they're the star of the show and that everything else that's kind of going on around in the music festival is really kind of the background of their own show. And that everybody is about to post this on some social media platform. And that I feel like that is a really weird idea. There's some Gen X part of me that thinks that's, that's just very strange. And that it, it just kind of fundamentally changes the experience of what you would be getting out of standing there on that farm watching a concert. If you're thinking that that concert is actually just a background for you, it's real self-important, first of all. I find it just really strange. And I don't know how I would feel about it if I was the band. It, I hate, like, actually really hate being the center of attention. Like, it, I feel really uncomfortable to the point where my wedding, everyone wanted me to have, like, a ceremony. And I was like, they're like, oh, how do you feel? Like, are you excited to play? And I'm like, no, because I'm supposed to be the center of attention, like the bride. I'm like, no, I'm good. Like, if everybody else could be the focus, that would be amazing. And I'll just get married. <laughs> that would be my ideal day. I'm like, they're like, it's your day. I'm like, no, I don't feel comfortable with something being my day because uh, I'm like, it's for everyone. So I don't, I don't know, that kind of weird. I don't understand it either, the fame thing doesn't make sense to me what people are necessarily getting out of it um because it makes me uncomfortable personally you know there used to be um when people were diagnosed with a, a thought disorder like schizophrenia a lot of times they would have a paranoid thought that people were listening to them or watching them all the time but that's just so commonly occurring now that mm -hmm. almost everybody just kind of takes it for granted and what i've heard is that i don't work in an inpatient setting but what i've heard is that the um the paranoid fantasy has actually sort of changed to resemble more like the truman show where people think that they're a part of a story that everybody else is actually in on but they no one is admitting that to them but people just take take for granted that they're being listened to by their phone or that maybe even their tv or the equivalent of this can hear what they're saying and it's just so <laughs> it's it's so ubiquitous that I think it's yeah. not even really even hitting the radar for a lot of young people. Um, See, my kids have messaging um, on their school laptops and they'll, I've said like, hey, you know, the IT guys at your school might be able to take a peek at that. It doesn't even phase them. You know, I think I would have been mortified by that idea that I'd be having what I consider to be a private conversation with my friend and that some, you know, computer tech person would be able to check that out. That doesn't seem like that bothers my kids at all. And I, you know, I, maybe that's revealing about me, but I kind of feel like that's strange. I guess a lot of people are concerned about being recorded, but I'm often like, you can, it'll just be me sitting and reading a book. Like, it's not going to be very exciting for you. I don't <laughs> know what to tell you. I'm like, You'll hear my kids tell me their their uh, random dreams and 
me plan my dinner and and mm. read that's pretty much it like i don't know what they would be getting out of it so i've never thought that anyone was because i'm like they would spend five minutes and be like this is really boring let's move on <laughs> so i've never been worried about it as lexi watches a scene from breathless she notes that in horror films that's a theme the male gaze the power of watching and observing weirdly the audience and me lying in bed complicit as any other viewer how much did horror themes such as the male gaze influence how you wrote the novel and what was most challenging to adapt or translate from the medium of film to the written word? What a great question. What a, what a thought provoking question. Um, so I'm going to have to kind of think around that for a little bit. Um, you know, I, I've thought a lot about what even would appeal to people about horror. You know, there's the notion that it's the only genre named about the feeling that it's trying to elicit from its viewer. And there's a line about that in the book. And what people get out of it, I think is kind of interesting. Um, and it makes you wonder what people get out of all kinds of counterintuitive entertainments or, or things that they're witnessing, boxing, uh, mixed martial arts, that ultimate fighting. Why do people, why is it so popular? It's, it's, it's brutal. It's hard to watch for a lot of times. And yet popularity is undeniable if you just look at the numbers. So it's strange. I, I, I find myself kind of puzzled by it because people put themselves in a situation where they're going to feel anxious. He can correct me if I'm wrong on the quote, but we were talking to Paul Tremblay and he said that um, in horror, there's always a fundamental truth. It may just be that it's a terrible situation, but everybody can kind of see that or read that and get that true. How did the quote exactly go, Tegan? It's been, it's been a couple of years. Oh, no, you're depending on the wrong person here. I think you said it. Uh, you got the gist of it, though. The yeah, gist. I don't I don't remember the exact wording. I'm sorry. I'm letting you down. Yeah. So I'm going to circle back to horror movies for a second. So as I said, I do not like watching them. To give a little bit of background on Tegan, we went to the theater when I forget the movie. It was um, Hunger Games. Who's the actress? Uh, it was Red Sparrow. I believe. Red Sparrow. We went to see Red Sparrow and a man was getting skinned and I'm like, what is happening? Covering my face. No way. I look at Tegan. She's just sitting there popping like peanut M&Ms in her mouth, like nothing. And I'm like, what are you, how can you eat? She's like, I have kids. I'm like, what does that have to do? What's happening on the screen? I don't know, but nothing phases her. She doesn't get creeped out by scary things. Like I do. She doesn't, <laughs> but I can read horror. I love classic horror but I don't mind reading it. And I don't know why that is, but what are some of your favorite horror novels that you've read? So it's been a long time since I've actually read a horror novel. Uh, I'm more familiar with kind of those classic um, horror movies. Um, but I guess just like, first of all, you mentioned Paul Tremblay. I really admire Paul. He's such a good writer and such a good storyteller. Um, and he writes about things that are really scary. Uh, so I think he's got kind of a good handle on it. Um, uh, Stephen King. I, I mean, I guess I read a bunch of those novels, especially when I was younger. The Stand. Um, I remember, um, I guess I read Cujo at one point, and it was kind of effective in terms of just kind of making me feel afraid about um, all kinds of things that wouldn't naturally be scary. I remember I had a basset hound when I was a kid growing up. And I remember having this moment where I was kind of afraid of this dog, the most harmless, gentle dog that you can imagine. And somehow that book made me feel like it was a threat. Stephen King can do that, can he? He can mm -hmm. just kind of creep in and yeah. 
Um, I'm actually, I'm getting Tegan to read the Institute. It is phenomenal. Oh, I need to check that one out. Yeah. It's really good. Mm-hmm. So in the same vein, you write thrillers, which contain some pretty scary stuff. There's a quote in the novel that I found very interesting. A question really, can life become a horror film and can you get lost in what you create? So how do you separate yourself from your writing? And what are some of the challenges of getting into the mindset of some of those scary or violent characters? Gosh, I, you know, I'll have to put that question back to you uh, in terms of like, what, what do you think would be the liabilities of, of doing that? I've more in uh, historical fiction, Tegan, but I think we've read more about um, people getting so consumed by it, as well as that true crime book you love, Tegan, um, Alone in the Dark, Afraid in the Dark, about the Golden State Killer. That case, that book, all like it consumed her completely, and she was really struggling when she was writing it. And I think that sometimes if you get into that dark place, it's same with acting. It can be hard to get out, I would imagine. I've never... Yeah, with the actors, it's, it's tough. But I think actors really have to kind of embody that. Yeah. And when you're writing, you're reading so much of it, and especially when it's true or you're doing that research, you're reading all of these true and terrible things that have happened, I think it could weigh heavy. Um, My opinion, it would probably be um, dependent on the author's process. The same as like an actor's process. If they're like, uh, oh, what's the word where they're, um, they become the character. Oh, like method acting. Method acting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess it would be if you're a method author and you try and really get into that um, versus uh, just kind of exploring the different motivations and stuff. I think it might be easier to separate yourself mm-hmm. from it, um, but I think it would depend on the person. Like, I once thought I could be a psychologist, and I mentioned that to my dad, and he was like, "No, no." you, you would be a horrible psychologist. My dad's brutally honest, by the way, like you earlier, you were like, Oh, never get your family to uh, edit your work. My dad would just, he start reading an essay and you'd be like, start over. Like he was brutal. <laughs> so he would be when I would actually ask, cause he would give me his honest opinion. Um, my mom, sorry, mom, love you, but I'm, she's my biggest fan always doesn't matter what I do. So, um, I think, uh, that would be my answer for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, kind of what they, they say about being a psychologist is that um, you've got to be somebody who's comfortable with um, high intimacy and low involvement mm-hmm. because, you know, the meeting only lasts for 45 or 50 minutes and then you really have to think about other stuff. And yeah, okay. so actually for people who are in that role of being a therapist, it's just better if you're not thinking about your patients later on. I think it's better for them. I think it's, uh, it's better for you. You really have to have a very balanced life and kind of go about your own stuff. And I think that helps you have objectivity. Yep. And that is why my dad was right. I would be (laughs) doing it. Um, So to continue on the horror film train here, we get a lot of stock character types, such as the ones referenced in the novel, the bumbling cop, the aspiring actress, the virtuous heroine, and the party girl. If you had to pick one, which stock character do you think you would be and why? Um, I think my my behavior would probably suggest I'd be the party girl. I'm only I'm kidding. No, I'd probably be the villain. I think that that sounds like fun. <laughs> I would also be the party girl. No, I don't know what I would be. <laughs> 
So Lexi is a very strong protagonist, incredibly resourceful and observant, even as a teenager. Why was it important for you to have her character embody these traits rather than starting off more helpless or naive? Yeah, I I thought about that a little bit. You know, the I think readers want a main character that they can kind of identify with, at least to a degree. And I think that it's it's nicer to read a story about somebody who has it a little bit together and especially a main character. Although, you know, your question makes me think about how cool it would be to have an arc where someone starts off as being not particularly competent or confident and that over the course of the story, they kind of gain that ability. That'd be neat if you could pull that off. I appreciated how. Lexi was flawed, but in a very relatable way that kind of, like you said earlier, creates that attachment and kind of has you rooting for her. So we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I kind of laughed when Lexi thinks, I grew up in the time here before cell phones and hardly any services existed. I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 16. And it was one of those big clonky pay as you go things because that's Mm -hmm. all they had. And they didn't have smartphones. I remember feeling so cool when I got my first Blackberry for my first job. So technology has changed a lot since we were all younger and continues to evolve at a frightening pace. Mm-hmm. How does technology affect you either positively or negatively in your career as an author? Yeah, it definitely makes, like we touched on, I think it makes the storytelling harder, you know, because there's so many simple solutions to problems that you have to figure out kind of corny ways to get around sometimes. Um, and it makes the action difficult to write sometimes because you know, I was just talking about this the other night, that when you're the action of robbing a bank can just look at look like a person kind of looking at their screen and tapping it or talking to somebody can kind of look like looking at a screen and tapping it. That that's so many things now that it, you, it's a challenge to really kind of have a story. And sometimes, you know, whole stories go out like in text message. And I think that that's you know, it's interesting to see that sort of woven into life. Um, it makes it a little bit more of a challenge for the audio version because it's so disjointed to read because there's a timestamp and the whole thing. Um, but that's the way that a lot of things go. Um, I, I was talking with a couple this week who, when they get in an argument, they find that it's easier for them to take their device, go in separate rooms and text it all out. And, you know, it works for them. I can't say that that's a bad idea. It's working for them. So that's a, that technology is kind of woven into the way that they do it. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge sort of as a, a storyteller. The other is kind of what we were talking about before too, where, you know, there's so much information, you know, there's been times where I've been really tempted to take the internet off of my laptop because I'll have a, a break or, you know, um, be, tired of paying attention to what I'm working on that day. And I'll be really tempted to just check the score of the game or see what's going on in the news or look to see what's developing in that big international story that's happening. And, you know, before you know it, you know, 15, 20 minutes have gone by and, you know, you're, you know, I've, I've got to be like reasonably productive during the time that I have because it, it, it's finite. So I think that's a challenge actually too, is blocking out the rest of the world. Absolutely. And I don't have TikTok for that reason because people be like, three hours went by. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean three whole hours? And I feel the same as you, as you said earlier, where the computer, I'll be talking to my husband about something like, oh, you know what? We should replace 
I don't know, a blender. Then you're on the computer and like these ads for the blender start coming up. I'm like, oh, I don't like it. I mean, thank you. It's kind of helpful, but I still don't like it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get a lot of ads for running shoes. Uh, And it's, you know, it's sometimes eerily accurate. And it'll say almost, it'll seem like something from the future where it'll say like, hey, don't you want to, you know, take another look at these Asics running shoes that you, you know, you passed on before? I, uh, a lot of what I have, I don't even shop for clothing that much, but my day job, that's all I do. I do the clothing. So I get so many clothing ads that I don't actually need, (laughs) but I kind of do. I'm like, oh, that actually that is helpful. I could probably try and get that in, in the store, <laughs> but then yeah. I start doing work when I'm supposed to just be like having my break. Sure. So it's really hard to disconnect. So yeah, yeah. I, I think sometimes I have to throw my phone across the room to like not do that. <laughs> in this next part, I want to give you a series of two options and you have to pick which one you would rather read about and which one you would rather write about. So even if you've ever already wrote about one of these elements, just pick based on your current mood. So the first one, seasoned detective and internet sleuth. Which one would you rather read about and which one would you rather write about? Oh, I see. Um, probably internet sleuth. For writing? Yeah. So next one, doctor and deathly ill patient. Which one you would you rather read about and which one would you rather write about? Oh God, doctor. A million times <laughs> out of a million. <laughs> Serial killer and wrongfully convicted. Serial killer. Same. <laughs> the theme here is like, um, <laughs> of the two, uh, what I'm observing about the way that I'm thinking about this is one of them seems like they have more agency than the other. Ah, yeah, uh, I get you. I I like a little bit of efficacy in my life. Yeah. Wrongfully convicted makes me upset, actually. I don't like those cases. I'm like, ah, I I can't. Um, Next one, uh, seedy neighborhood and affluent suburbia. Gosh. Suburbia. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Happy ending and ambiguous ending. Uh, I'll take the ambiguous ending. Unpopular take. Um, I think that a lot of readers like it when things get kind of tied up, but um, I like it where there's, uh, I, I trust my readers and I, I like it where there's a little bit of ambiguity and you kind of kind of can't tell. Um, and it's fun, actually, later on, I'll get questions from readers about what happened to so-and-so after the end of the book. And it's interesting. They kind of want to keep thinking about it. I think that's why people like series so much. Yeah, I like, um, I like ones where... S- a lot of things are tied up, but there's just one piece that isn't. It's just that one little thread where I like those endings where I'm like, oh, I'm almost yeah. mad, but like also respect it. Looks <laughs> sure. like, so um, good. Sherry Lapina is great at that. She'll leave like one little thread. I forget the book that she read. Uh, not, not a Happy Family came out about a year and a half ago. Yeah. And you know, you think it's over and then there's just one little thing that she leaves in there. It's, it's awesome. She does such a good job with it. Yeah. And the last one is hero and anti-hero. Uh, anti-hero, I think. You know, I like it when um, somebody's conflicted. You know, the, um, I like it when 
there's a person who is a flawed protagonist, but somehow they're the only one who can really unravel the mystery and they kind of rise to the occasion. And I think that like other re readers uh, are, are conf conflicted or, or feel two ways about whether or not uh, that's somebody that they want to read about or relate to. But I find those kinds of characters way more interesting. I always comes to mind like that Batman a little bit. He's kind yeah. of that where you're like, well, is he a balanced person? <laughs> no, he has a lot of issues, but um, <laughs> he does do things that are helpful. Yeah. yeah. So are you able to tell us anything about what you are currently working on? Yeah, no. Uh, so I'm excited about what I'm working on. And it's, it's funny because the pace of publishing is such that, you know, I'm almost done with the edits of it, even though it's not going to come out until September of 23. Uh, and it's set in a psychology department. Uh, they're running an experiment on deception. And without saying too much, one of them does not do well. So uh, there, it's sort of a locked room mystery because there's only a certain number of suspects. And, you know, I, I came up through graduate school in psychology and I'm familiar with kind of all of the uh, you know, little set pieces that could come and play. There's like one way glass and ways that people can kind of listen in. And I just like that environment. I think it's a cool way to tell a story. Some of those old buildings, the architecture is pretty cool. Um, I had a friend of mine who's a psychologist read this draft of it that I'm working on just to kind of test the accuracy out. And so it, it, I think it should be fun. That sounds so good. But then September, come on. That's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, when oh, I first started out, I, I thought, this is just glacial. Why does it take so long? But there's two things that kind of came out. And, you know, one is that there being a little bit of time allows for the excitement about the book mm -hmm. to kind of build. And I think that's cool. And I, I used to think, well, you guys just push print, right? And it out it, out it comes. And the, next, the next day it's in the bookstore. And it is not that way. There is a whole wing of like a publishing house and publishing industry for promotions and typesetting and getting the book ready and all of the physical design stuff. I, I had really no insight into how long that that took, but I, I do now, it takes a minute. Yeah, it does. Plus there's paper shortages now. Totally, yeah. <laughs> Just, totally. That's more my experience in the world of buying. I'm like, oh, the supply chain is brutal right now. Um, just, and yeah. getting paper, so. Anyways, that's my day job coming in. Excuse me. Um, <laughs> so I just want to thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. Guys, uh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. You can find Always the First to Die, along with RJ's other novels, wherever books are sold. You can keep up to date with RJ by visiting his website at www.rjjacobsauthor.com and on Instagram at, at rjjacobs75. All links will be provided in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please leave us a review. It really helps. Also, don't forget to visit us on Instagram to continue the conversation, be notified of bonus episodes, and keep up to date with what we are currently reading. We put up new episodes every other Friday.